I'm Andrew Faust here at the Center for Bioregional Living with Permaculture Perspectives. Today, I'm going to start out reading from a book that is one of my favorites. We often start our homeschooling classes with this pattern that I'll be sharing with you in these podcast sessions, and it's the approach of beginning with something that's a little more philosophical and often Eastern in its nature. This is a book that is called Eastern in Relationship to the West. This is a book called uh, The Later Teachings of Lao Tzu by Hua Hu Ching. So we'll start off today. You know, today's theme is looking at Civilization as an artifice with historical baggage that is onerous and substantive, to say the least, and that we are going to go to the arguably Sisyphean effort of salvaging it, salvaging this thing called civilization. And the reason I might suggest that we'd like to do that is because Most of us have grown up with it, and it's something that we have a cozy, comfortable, familiar feeling about. And so I think starting from there, we could say there are some intuitive things when you have received some of the privileges and opportunities that the present civilization affords. It is realistic to say what aspects of this scenario are salvageable in terms of something that has ethical and ecological and humanitarian caring, showing that we care as a result of how it is that we go about our daily affairs. What is it that's feeding us? How is it that we're being housed? How is it that we're being clothed? What is it that's providing the energy and the fuel that moves us around in the landscape as well as the materials that we are consuming, making use of, uh, constructing and creating with? Where are these materials coming from? And it creates a new world for future generations to inherit that doesn't repeat the mistakes of a misinformed, maladaptive set of approaches to life strategies, shall we say. Meaning, if you live in a culture and a world and an infrastructure that depends upon large-scale and extensive human suffering and ecological destruction, then it begs a question, why would we contribute to such a society? And I think that that is the fundamental question of our times, meaning if we need to sum up much of what it is that those of us who have woken up to the true costs of the military-industrial nightmare of modernity have begun to ask deeper questions about What are the foundations of how it is that we've gotten here and how do we turn this ship around and keep from sinking ourselves? 
And this is about, I would suggest, salvaging ourselves collectively as a species, as well as the planet. The Earth is our home. The Earth is robust, resilient, and will come up with another life assemblage as time marches on with or without us. If it is to be with us, I would suggest that this collective well-being is a sense of identity that we need to be cultivating and putting together the pieces of the puzzle of creating a new way of living that is informed by the old, informed by the past, and looks at the patterns that rise from the surface over longer spans of time as we think about human evolution and human society and life ways and which are the most adaptive, which are the most suited to the earth and to ourselves. And so today that'll be one of the main themes that we'll be looking at is this adaptive framework and patterns and civilization. And we're going to look first through the lens of an, a more holistic modality, which I feel the Taoism has at its roots a holistic integrative approach that it fits very well with our permaculture perspective. And so here's our reading from Huaching, the later teachings of Lao Tzu, passage number 56. The master said, kind prince, Tao is complete. It is like a big tree with roots, trunk, branches, twigs, leaves, flowers, and fruit. Partial practice is not the integral way. When one takes any single portion as the whole tree, one creates a distorted worldly religion or a fragmented worldly science. Take the human body, for example. It has five senses, two groups of internal organs, four limbs with fingers and toes, etc., all comprising the whole. If one takes a finger or a limb or one of the organs as an object of study, it will create a perspective of dissected details, not the total view. The form and function of a human being come from the integration of all the parts. This is true not only in man, but also in the vast multi-universe. Kind prints a big tree with its roots, its trunk, its branches, twigs, flowers, and fruit begins from a tiny seed. Just as the multi-universe originates from invisible particles of energy, all forms come from the formless. The manifest is the subtle performance of the unmanifest. The unmanifest and the manifest become the root of each other as yin and yang polarities of the integral tai chi. 
venerable teacher, said the prince, is it correct to say that everything is Tao? Kind prince, everything that serves the true nature of life is Tao. Everything that does not serve the true nature of life is not Tao. So I'm going to stop there. And that passage very well speaks to our theme today. What is Tao? What is not Tao? That which is in accord with life is Tao. And the goal is to uphold all life, all human beings, all sectors of our social order shall rise together in a truly advanced civilization. Social stratification is something that will be hardly noticeable to non-existent. And it is this viewpoint of transformation and liberation from some small-minded social construct of what matters and what has meaning and moving towards a more expansive, open-hearted viewpoint of how the meta-system, how social structures, how institutions and governments interact with their people. How do we create a way of living for the individual where the means of governance respects the well-being of all individuals and ensures as its primary focus that all people are doing well. And that until we have achieved a state of affairs financially, uh, quality of life, to where each individual has such a very good quality of life, is financially comfortable, then we will realize that we can get on with the affairs of being humans who have a capacity to be good to one another. And until everybody has enough, until everyone is doing well, we shall continue to have fluxes and flows of human social organizational patterns that ultimately will meet an end and diffuse back into the general chaos of the world, which order as it is created in human societies is definitely a human construct that has some similarities throughout the natural world and some uniqueness that is not found. One of which is this tendency towards a high level of standing on the shoulders of ecological destruction and exploitation within our own social organizational patterns.
So my next passage I'd like to share with you is from James C. Scott, Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Early Estates. This is a book that I'm going to be hopefully pulling together as we get a date agreed upon, a book reading club where we will spend more quality time discussing themes and aspects of this text which are interesting and meaningful. This book is recent, published in 2017 by Yale University. The reason we'll give some of Mr. Scott's ideas some attention right here in a brief synopsis is that he has been acknowledged as a sterling professor of political science and a co-director of the Agrarian Studies Program at Yale University. His previous books include Domination and the Arts of Resistance, Seeing Like a State, and The Art of Not Being Governed. So here, a lot of the themes in this book I really appreciate. This one is emerging towards the end as part of a chapter entitled Fragility of the Early State. And... I wanted to read to you some of what it is that he is talking about in terms of these perspectives that we have in history that are kind of accepted, canonized perspectives. And those are that certain periods were more desirable than other periods in history. And that there were high points of civilization and then that there were these things called a collapse. And what what I hadn't really heard put as succinctly and clearly as Scott puts it, what he says is that, in fact, what it is that we call a collapse very well for many members of the society may have been an improvement of quality of life. And that what we call a dark age very well may have been not so dark for all members of the society. So I appreciate these alternative and well-informed viewpoints that he brings to classic themes that are often unquestioned, like, wasn't it wonderful when civilizations built these amazing ancient sites that we now go to and visit today of Colosseums, of the Parthenon, of the Pyramids, of Angkor Vat, of the Inca, of the Aztec. And when we think about these ancient civilizations, there is this implicit assumption that it is a loss when they dissolve in some way, shape, or form, which we will find that as we look closer, in many cases for many of the people, was not such a tragic state of affairs. In some instances, in the ancient city center of Tiahuanaku, we have a city where In fact, the dissolution of what was the largest city possibly in the world at the time of some 100,000 inhabitants in modern-day Mexico 
predating the Aztec, but later incorporated into the Aztec city centers. And this site collapsed, it became clear because of a uprising of the worker class, of the peasant sector, of the people who'd been making the textiles, and literally burning down the city and moving back into the countryside. So here's some more alternative viewpoints, shall we say, or rather perhaps just focusing the microscope a little more on some time periods that are often treated with broad swaths and vast generalizations. Always valuable to take a closer look and continue to look again at our past and ask these questions about equity and ecology. The first, quote, Dark Age of Egypt, called the First Intermediate Period, was slightly more than a century long, 2160 to 2030 BCE. Between the Old Kingdom and the Middle Kingdom, there seems not to have been any crash in population or even a radical dispersal of settlement patterns. Rather, it seems to have been a hiatus in the continuity of central rule. The apparent result was a rise of local provincial rulers, nomarchs, who now paid only nominal allegiance to the central court. Taxes may well have been reduced, while provincial elites availed themselves of the right to imitate the rituals previously reserved exclusively for the central elite. It represented a small democratization of culture. In sum, the first intermediate period seems less a dark age than a brief episode of decentralization touched off almost certainly by a period of low water levels in the Nile that led to crop failures and the loosening of the central state's grip on its subjects. Inscriptions from the period dwell as much on a revolution in social relations, on plunder, the looting of grain stores, the ascendance of the poor, and destitution of the rich, as on deprivation in general. The Dark Age of Greece lasted roughly from 1100 to 700 BCE. Many of the palatial centers were abandoned and often physically destroyed and burned. Trade was vastly diminished, and writing in the Linear B script disappeared. The causes suggested are multiple and unverified. A Dorian invasion, invasion by mysterious sea peoples of the Mediterranean, drought, and perhaps disease. In terms of the culture, it is seen as a dark age before the subsequent glories of Greece's classical age. But the oral epics of the Odyssey and the Iliad, as we have noted, date from precisely this dark age of Greece and were only transcribed in the form in which we have come to know them. One might well argue, in fact, that such oral epics that survive by repeated performance and memorization constitute a far more democratic form of culture than texts 
that depend less on performance than on a small class of literate elites who can read them. While Greece's Dark Age represented a long and thorough eclipse of the earlier city-states, we know next to nothing about life in the smaller, fragmented, autonomous centers that survived, nor the role that they may have played in laying the foundation for the subsequent flourishing of classical Greece. There may well be, then, a great deal to be said on behalf of classical Dark Ages in terms of human well-being. Much of the dispersion that characterizes them is likely to be a flight from war, taxes, epidemics, crop failures, and conscription. As such, it may staunch the worst losses that arise from concentrated sedentism under state rule. The decentralization that arises may not only lessen the state-imposed burdens, but may even usher in a modest degree of egalitarianism. Finally, providing that we not necessarily equate the creation of culture exclusively with apical state centers, decentralization and dispersal may prompt both a reformulation and a diversity of cultural production. And I think certainly we can see that when we think about how colonization in the age of industrialization has destroyed and decimated languages and cultures all around the world, forced them from the coast and more complex patterns of settlement to only living in some of the worst, most marginal, steep interior mountain lands. We have seen that, in fact, what has happened to a vast number of people and cultures around the world has been the homogenization, centralization, and the creation of a monoculture mentality that has just utterly reduced the world to a profits margin in a stock market with no respect for the complexity and beauty of humanity outside of state-controlled, centralized, industrialized infrastructures of global import-export economies. We need to go local. We need to reinvigorate our respect for one another and cultural complexity. And we also need to get much of the artifice of the petrochemical nuclear age out of our midst so that we can create human-scale economies and relationships once again. So back to our text. Those are just a few thoughts to share about some of what was going through my mind as I was reading to you this section about how, in fact, we could say that we had a far more democratic form of culture when we were orally based, that there's a deep recognition when I read that for the vast number of oral-based societies that have been destroyed uh, aggressively and irregardlessly by this extractive and colonizer 
uh, and highly prejudiced, prejudiced and reductionist society of the last 500 years, which has accelerated and expanded at an exponential scale in the last, oh, 150 years. Really kicked into high gear in the last 70. So a lot to learn from history, from our mistakes, a lot to learn from language and the presuppositions that it makes, and much to begin to address, both presently and in the future, when it comes to really creating a quality of life that all of our fellow human beings are enjoying together. And that is the true path of our evolution, of our, of our advancement. I wish also to at least gesture in the direction of another unrecognized, undocumented, true dark age far from state centers. Most of the world's population in the epoch of the early states comprised non-state hunters and gatherers. William McNeil conjectures that they would have been demographically devastated when they came into contact with the novel diseases generated by concentrations in the grain core, diseases that for urban populations were becoming more endemic and hence less lethal. If so, much of this non-state population may have perished well outside of any documentation and notice, and therefore outside of recorded history, as was the case for the epidemiological devastation of New World populations as they succumbed to diseases that raced inland often well ahead of any European eyes. If we add to the toll of such diseases, the scooping up of non-state populations as slaves, a practice that continued into the 19th century, we have a dark age of epic proportions among peoples without histories that went unnoticed by history itself. So really appreciating that book by James C. Scott. You can see there how he goes right into the face of many of the prejudices of Western academia, questions them, and throws light on the incongruities of putting on pedestals these, quote, high points and paying attention to our language when we use terms like dark age to talk about periods of human history that very well may have been and clearly in many cases were, in fact, improvements of the life situation for many. Now, let me also state here as I go into my next section that, in fact, well, I recognize that there is a lot of truth in this, rec- in this awareness that 
we can confidently say that much of what went on in the ancient world and in the world of nation-states has been and is in general not benefiting the vast majority of the human population. It has been benefiting a very small number of families, bloodlines, hoarders, and exploiters. And they've continued to do their best to, con- to be holding on to the keys of that world order that concentration of wealth and power into the hands of a few. And that is why it is that we know that we need a decentralized, we need egalitarian, we need a true democracy. We must engage in the mechanisms that are available to us at present in all of our governmental structures to become a truly participatory society and economy. And that as more of the people, truly the people, engage with our process, we can claim this system, this artifice, this construct that has up until now largely been used as a means of exploitation of human beings and concentration of material wealth, resources, technological capacity into the hands of a very small number of twisted minds that largely lack empathy or compassion for their fellow human beings. And so as we reclaim power, we bring the means of production back into the hands of the people through first farming more because it's fun, because you're outside doing something that you can clearly see the benefits and the meaning of and getting a return from, and because it steps us outside of the money economy when we start growing things that we spend money on and start creating something from a small seed that we see is part of thousands and thousands of years of human autonomy and improvement of quality of life through using our plant knowledge and wisdom to create a large amount of yield from a small amount of effort and space. And so starting with farming, reclaiming the means of production is one of the key ways that we take back the power And it's essential because, as I go into my next section here, I want to be sure and keep on this theme that I'm not making lightly of the fact that as the present civilization crumbles and collapses around us, the dark age that we are looking at truly, sadly, unfortunately, I have to say, is going to be a dark age for everybody because of the toxic, 
pools of contaminated materials that the military-industrial megalomaniacs have, have saddled us with. We the people. You know, 12,000 Superfund sites, brownfields all over the place, tons of hazardous chemicals that we don't even know the names of or the locations of, in addition to the ones that have been mapped. So right now, we can't afford to let this monstrosity totally collapse and have some hope of improvement in quality of life for the common people because, in fact, the pollution legacy, the contaminants, the unstable affairs of the industrial system right now require a very well-engineered decommissioning and powering down of that legacy and means of production and energy generation and the implementation of a new way of doing things that doesn't require as much energy and definitely doesn't rely on nearly as much to hardly any amount of these really hazardous toxic materials starting first with the elimination and discontinued use of anything that involves radioactive materials. Next, bioaccumulative materials like PCBs, the only chemical ever banned in U.S. history in 1976 after 30 years of use in production. Why was PCBs banned? Well, for the same reason that DDT should be but hasn't been, as well as dioxins, which is that they're all bioaccumulative, which means they never break down. They just continue to cycle through living systems. So those are the first ones, radioactive isotopes, bioaccumulative substances. Then it starts to make things like lead and mercury and heavy metals seem not quite as noxious, except they are definitely up there. That's why they're third on our list, because they don't break down either. They continue to concentrate. We need to not be just spreading them in large quantities all over the countryside in the form of jet fuel falling from the skies. And then next will be carcinogens, mutagens, teratogens, and endocrine disruptors. And as we phase all of those out, then we get back to a quality of life where we aren't so held hostage at the mouth of a gun by these incredibly volatile, toxic, and hazardous materials that we've been duped into thinking we're okay to rely upon, resort to, and create a sector of our economy now that is held up by it. So that is going to be my introduction to our next reading. This one I also feel that as a citizen of the world, and especially of the United States, you owe it to yourself to know about this history. This is another we're going to open up our view, focus our microscope here. I'll give a little background on why I picked up, actually Adriana picked up this book for me because she knows of my fascination with 
the history of the nuclear legacy in this country and in the world. It has to do partially personally with my growing up during the Cold War and wanting to know about this huge force in my life that was a background note of you could wake up to a nuclear nightmare at any moment. So as I was saying, my next reading is from a book that goes into some of this history, this history of the Cold War and the nuclear weapons complex. And it sets a tone for why I feel confident in my emphasis to you that we must be very smart, thoughtful, and intentional about how we diffuse and decommission and power down the industrial system, starting with the nuclear power plants and the nuclear infrastructure and the radioactive materials, moving on down to what we're doing with bioaccumulative materials, which are used in things like diesel and plastics, and getting plastics out of our economy and our packaging, and then down to heavy metals and getting them out of things like fuels and pesticides, and then on down to carcinogens and teratogens and endocrine disruptors. Starting here with the history of the first nuclear bombs made, which were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Fat Man and Little Boy. These bombs created a incredible ethical, moral, and ecological legacy that is entirely ungrasped and unreckoned with by our society as well as, of course, the individuals who were the architects of this mode of destruction, which then moved forward to fast forward to a legacy of 30,000 nuclear bombs that then we decommissioned down to 6,000 nuclear bombs, which still leaves us with more than enough to blow the entire planet up many, many times over edge to edge. Only a few nuclear bombs being exchanged would be sufficient for the complete destruction of all life as we know it, basically, on this planet. And so this book is called The Apocalypse Factory. And it is written about the Hanford site. The Hanford site is about the size of the island of Manhattan. And this site, they then built an entire town there that people who built the bomb lived in. And I just wanted to read to you a little bit of this section about the wastes and also here it is By 1983, the problems posed by Hanford's wastes were becoming impossible to ignore. 
Since 1943, the federal government had built 177 huge underground tanks near the chemical separation plants. The tanks consisted of circular concrete shells with one and later two layers of interior steel linings. They contained the chemical and radiological effluent of 40 years of plutonium production, a toxic mishmash of chemicals, fission products, and unrecovered uranium and plutonium so radioactive that if held in a glass at arm's length, the waste would deliver a fatal dose in just a few minutes, buried beneath 6 to 11 feet of dirt to protect people from their radioactive contents. 6 to 11 feet of dirt. The tanks were always meant to be an interim solution for the separation plant's liquid wastes, but no one had come up with a permanent solution. Meanwhile, the early single-shelled tanks began to leak, not only after they were built. A million or so gallons of waste had already flowed into the rocks and soil below the tanks. In addition to the high-level waste at Hanford, plant operators had released more than 400 billion gallons of water from Hanford's reactors, canyon buildings, and other facilities directly into the ground. Nearly a thousand times the volume of waste in the tanks. They assumed that the chemicals and radioactive elements in the water would bind to the dry desert soil and remain immobilized, but some of the contaminants carried deeper by rainwater and continued wastewater flows moved farther downward. Eventually, they hit the water table beneath the dry soil. There, they began moving sideways toward the Columbia River. By the 1980s, something else about Hanford was becoming impossible to ignore. For years, farming families on the flat expanse east of Hanford had been adding up the number of cancers, miscarriages, and stillbirths that they and the people they knew had experienced. The total seemed suspiciously high. Now the farmers and increasingly the residents of the Tri-Cities had to ask themselves a question. Could their illnesses and those of people they knew and loved be the result of living near Hanford? So that is to give you a little glimpse of the underbelly of the nuclear weapons legacy in this country and to also give you a sense of the scale of the contamination legacy. The other sites that have equal scale of pollution load to figure out are Rocky Flats in Colorado, the Savannah River site in South Carolina, and Oak Ridge, Tennessee, as well as the Brookhaven Laboratories in Long Island. These sites have a lot of illegal and hidden radioactive waste that was dumped in incredibly irresponsible ways. And so it is that legacy that turns us towards the positive and away from the negative with 
a 180 degree directional objective where we absolutely move away from the entire nuclear mythology and misdirected materials use and move towards at the very first approach to creating a new future for ourselves, a more ecological future, is to cut down on the need for energy in the first place, to cut down on requiring any energy inputs to go into how it is that we're fed, how it is that we are kept comfortable, and how it is that we move materials in ourselves through the landscape. So for our next reading, to give us some inspiration about what that looks like, I like this document that I found that is from about 2009. It is called Planning Sustainable Cities Policy Directions. It is published by the United Nations division called Habitat, UN Habitat, and they call it a Global Report on Human Settlements. And I'm pulling a section that I think has a lot of great basic insights for us here about design objectives and opportunities for retrofitting the infrastructure for creating a better inheritance with much richer and more exciting opportunities for present populations and for future generations. So here we are on page 42 of Planning Sustainable Cities. In large cities, the traditional engineering approach to providing energy has been through large centralized production facilities and extensive distribution systems that transport power relatively long distances. This is wasteful because of line losses, but also because large baseload power systems cannot be turned off and on easily, so there is considerable power shedding when the load does not meet the need. Distributed infrastructure is beginning to be demonstrated in cities across the globe, such as Malmo, Sweden, and Toronto, Canada. Just over the border, really close by, let's go get some good ideas. Utilities will need to work with city planners to develop models for local energy and water planning through community-based approaches and local management. See, and that's key, that's foundational and said so simply there. Planners need to develop models for local energy and water planning through community-based approaches and local management. Fundamental, right now, not at all remotely how development or infrastructure or planning is happening. Very little local inclusion, very little community involvement, definitely not being done on a watershed scale, nor with a focus on local production of energy and food. All of which we're proponents for and advocating and working on here in our little corner of life in Ulster County, in the town of Wilborsing in the village of Ellenville, to bring this type of green infrastructure, community-based, local resilient planning to our community here and hopefully to inspire others in our surrounding region. So here's more from the UN recommendations for planning sustainable cities. 
increasing photosynthetic spaces as part of green infrastructure, growing energy and providing food and materials locally is becoming part of urban infrastructure development. The use of photosynthetic processes in cities reduces their ecological impact by replacing fossil fuels and can bring substantial ecological benefits through emphasis on natural systems. In other words, sustainably harvesting materials that provide energy and provide food from the local landscape can be restorative of the landscape and provide a new economic yield and input. There has been a positive trend in planning in the direction of an expanded notion of urban infrastructure that includes the idea of green infrastructure based on photosynthetic processes. Green infrastructure refers to the many green and ecological features and systems from wetlands to urban forests that provide a host of benefits to cities and urban residents. This understanding of green infrastructure as part of the working landscape of cities and metropolitan areas has been extended to include the photosynthetic resources of renewable energy, local food, and fiber. And those three being combined is very important that we think at a master planning watershed scale in regards to local food, local fiber, and renewable energy and that we don't end up canceling out one with what we're doing with the other, which at present is one of the pitfalls of what's happening with how renewables is being implemented with no decent plan for improving local food production in a way that is ecologically restorative. Cities are embarking on efforts to promote sustainable local food production in view of the vast amounts of energy required to grow, process, and deliver food. See box six. So this separate box, I often read all the details of, but I'm just going to pull the highlights from it. The box is entitled Energy Costs of Food Production in the U.S. The high energy costs of food production are vividly illustrated in the case of the U.S. It takes around 10 fossil fuel calories to produce each food calorie in the average American diet. So if an individual's daily food intake is 2,000 calories, it takes around 20,000 calories to grow the food and get it to the person. See, and this is in part because of how fossil fuel heavy our food system is. Thus, as much energy is used, and this is stunning, as much energy is used in the U.S. to grow food, as to power homes or fuel cars. So this is why we need a triangulated approach. We're gonna cut down on energy use in homes, we're gonna cut down on energy inputs to grow food, and we're gonna change how we fuel things and how we move through the landscape. Progress in moving away from fossil fuels also requires serious localizing and local sourcing of building materials thus in turn provides new opportunities to build more photosynthetic economies. Dramatic reductions in the energy consumed as part of making these materials is, of course, the primary benefit. Instead of building houses with SIPS panels that are made from synthetic industrial products, we're going to build them with clay and straw 
and hemp and lime and wood. And that's because we can make things that are better, natural, high performance, and biodegrade, and provide local, sustainable jobs and material flows. Improving eco-efficiency. In an effort to improve eco-efficiency, cities and regions are moving from linear to circular or closed-loop systems, where substantial amounts of their energy and material needs are providing from their waste streams, like getting food out of trash would provide jobs, energy, soil, and fertilizer for local food production. Eco-efficient cities reduce their ecological footprint by reducing wastes and resource requirements and can also incorporate green agenda issues in the process. A more integrated notion of energy and water entails seeing cities as complex metabolic systems with flows and cycles and where ideally outputs traditionally viewed as negative, e.g. solid waste, wastewater, are re-envisioned as productive inputs to satisfy other urban needs, including energy. This shift away from the current view of cities as linear resource-extracting machines is often described as the eco-efficiency agenda. Well, in order to do that, one of the things we need to do is source-separate waste streams, which means industrial effluents cannot be being sent to our sewage treatment plants just Household cleaners and poop and pee and showers, that can all go there. But we need to have a whole new recycling system that is done on site for much of what the environmental movement would call our dirty industries, right? The dirty industries need to keep their truly dirty materials, which requires a better adjective choice like hazardous to life materials, on their site and recycled there, not just sent to a sewage treatment plant. So source separation is key to moving cities out of this linear system to what they're calling this eco-efficiency system. And we teach about that and have a lot of models of that that we bring to our course that are the latest up-to-date examples from all around the world on how we begin to retrofit our cities. We're keen on that topic, very focused on it. I see it as one of the most important projects of our time is to redesign cities with 50% of the world in them. We need to have them be something that's human-friendly and ecologically intelligent. So back to our book here. Eco-efficiency does not have to involve just new technology, but can also be introduced into cities through intensive use of human resources such as the Cairo's waste recycling communities, the Zabaline. For instance, there are many examples of how cities across the third world have integrated waste management into local industries, buildings, and food production. Increasing sense of place. A growing number of cities and regions understand sustainability more generally as a way of building their local economies building onto a unique sense of place and as a way of nurturing a high quality of life and a strong commitment to community. The more place-oriented and locally self-sufficient a city's economy is, the more it will reduce its ecological footprint and ensure that its valuable ecological features are enhanced. 
as well as cultural and human dimensions, I would say they're all part of the same puzzle. When people have a sense of belonging and an identity in their town or city, they are keen to create local enterprises. When communities relate strongly to the local environment, the city's heritage, and its unique culture, they develop a strong social capital of networks and trust that forms the basis of a robust urban economy. This approach to local economic development, which emphasizes place-based social capital, can be related to the sustainability agenda in cities. Energy efficiency, for instance, through producing power from solar, wind, or biomass in the locality of the region can also be a part of local economic development strategies. And then here's the last section on this I wanted to share with you. Sustainable transport. Cities, neighborhoods, and regions are increasingly being designed to use energy sparingly by offering walkable, transit-oriented options, often supplemented by vehicles powered by renewable energy. You notice key there is that they put first walkable, then supplemented by renewable-powered vehicles. Cities with more sustainable transport systems have been able to reduce their ecological footprints from their reduced use of fossil fuels, as well as through reduced urban sprawl and reduced dependence on car-based infrastructure. Here they have a side note with a photo of a lot of traffic saying, Motor vehicle abundance and thus dependence on petroleum is rising at an alarming rate in cities. The agenda for large cities now is to have more sustainable transport options so as to reduce traffic whilst reducing greenhouse gases, to reduce a city's ecological footprint and enhance its livability. It is necessary to manage the growth of cars and trucks and their associated fossil fuel consumption. Unfortunately for many cities, the reduction of car use is not yet on the agenda and traffic growth has been continuous. So, there you have it. Sustainability, urban style, planning from the UN. Some really helpful directives and insights. We have lots more material to share with you on these topics of what I characterize as retrofitting the infrastructure to be more regionally self-reliant. The work continues. Looking forward to our collaboration and in solidarity on this planet in outer space. Please invest your energy, invest your attention, your time and your care in one another and being outside more and just being, giving you much, much positive energy and well-being as we circle around the sun together here. Be well, my friends.